2020 was unprecedented for a lot of reasons, including the number of climate-related events that marred an already challenging year. The 2020 Atlantic hurricane season produced an extraordinary 30 named storms, the highest on record, 13 hurricanes, the second highest on record, and six major hurricanes tied for the second highest on record. There were record high atmospheric carbon levels despite a record emissions drop as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Extreme fire activity in the US, Australia, Arctic, and Brazil marked 2020 as the fifth costliest year on record for wildfires. Flooding in China caused $32 billion in damages and killed more than 200 people. A near record low Arctic sea ice reached its annual minimum on September 15th, bottoming out at its second lowest extent in volume ever recorded. And by December, 2020 ranked as the second hottest year on record for the planet. And then at the beginning of 2021, perhaps the most unexpected event of all, sub-zero temperatures in Texas. The February storm not only illustrated the climate weirdness that has impacted areas around the globe, but also the infrastructure needed to address events that no one could have dreamed possible just a few decades ago. The winter storm strain on an overwhelmed electric grid left many without power or water. And according to the Texas Tribune, the storm resulted in more than 100 people dead from hypothermia. So considering all of that, how do we even begin addressing the intersection of society and climate change? We're in our homes sort of like, where's the power? Where's the water? And it's an interesting like human puzzle and like how we deal with these things is so fascinating. That's Courtney Seacal, an assistant professor in UNT's Department of Anthropology. Seacal is an environmental anthropologist who specializes in areas including the Peruvian Andes in California, and along with climate change, study science and technology and how the two converge. So I studied the predictive politics of climate change, which is sort of a fancy way of saying <laughs> that I'm interested in what is chosen culturally to be protected and safeguarded and invested in as climate change effects are unfolding. And so I'm interested in how culture shapes what we think is important and uh, how culture also tells us what we should do to protect it. And, also helps us to think about things like what we want the future to be like. And so when we're thinking about climate change, often what we're doing is this sort of like uh, future divining, future telling type work. And, and I'm interested in how it is that like we imagine the future as a cultural project. On this episode of UNT Pod, join me, Erin Kristalis, as I talk with Dr. Seacal about what her research has revealed about the effects of climate change on people and societies and the best ways to come together to salvage the future. How did you first become interested in exploring the issue of climate change, and in particular, looking at it through an anthropological lens? I feel like climate change has been around me for decades. Where I'm from in California, we had entire seasons dedicated to fire. So for as long as I could remember, things like drought or uh, worsening environmental conditions have always been a really pressing statewide concern. Um, but I became really interested in climate change just a few years ago 
guess in the last 10 years, when my parents moved back to where my mom's from, which is in Cajun country, Louisiana. And I was really interested in how things like storms and hurricanes were affecting them. And also nearby, there was this really interesting place that I used to go to when I was a child called the Ile du Bois Island. And it's not far from where they live. And when I was a kid and when I was younger, this was a pretty massive space, 200 square mile island. And it's essentially disappeared into the Gulf. And now it's maybe three square miles and homes are on stilts and the whole place has essentially disappeared. And this is because of the conditions of things like rising tides, but also the coastal mismanagement because of things like offshore oil and creating different types of levees to protect oil interests. And so I became really interested watching people that live near my parents deal with these types of issues. And I was especially interested when the first US resettlement of climate refugees took place and came from this area. And so the Biloxi Chitimata Choctaw tribe which is kind of a, a band of a bunch of different groups who wound up there fleeing the Trail of Tears. They lived on that island and they were the first people to be federally resettled by the government as climate change refugees. And so seeing how these things were happening, not just sort of like to people I'm imagining in the world, but to people that I see and people that live near my family and my family and myself included, uh, climate change is actually very personal because it's so around us, even though sometimes it seems like it's arriving or it's going to be here sometime in the future. And I know you mentioned you're from California and, and I'm, I'm wondering because I, I feel like, you know, for a lot of decades, there's been a lot of discussion about climate change centered on California, but you haven't heard it as much when it comes to other parts of, of the US. And so I'm wondering if you feel like that has made you especially interested in this topic, just kind of maybe growing up more aware of the effects of climate. Definitely. I feel like climate change is part of so many different public narratives. You learn about it in school, uh, in science and all these different sort of like categories in California. Um, but also in other parts of the world, I feel like it's really salient. So where I was doing my research in Peru, children are also learning about how like the glaciers used to be here at this point, and now they're mostly disappeared. And so you learn about climate change in a lot of different ways through oral history. That type of exposure might sort of predispose me to look at these types of things, especially when in Texas, there are so many climate effects sort of unfolding. And so in Texas, we have things here like rising sea level, intensified big storms. Um, and then the sort of subject of my next project was, which is thinking about heat. And I know that like, when I first moved to Texas this past year, the day that we moved in, it was 116 degrees. And I remember thinking, God, how does anyone survive this? <laughs> um, but of course, the answer is often people don't. And so I started looking into it and thinking about how like, there's all these different studies, especially about places like Houston, where over 23,000 people have died in heat-related issues in the last 15 years. And how climate change is actually all around us here. It's getting worse every year. And so these are things that are actually here as well. We just don't have the language for it or the tools to think about it, or, or even sometimes the opportunities to think about it probably shapes how people might come to like naturalize the fact that that wasn't the case 20 years ago. Or, you know, we might remember like it was a hot day, but like, gosh, was it a hot day all the time like this? And so thinking about how things have changed is probably really helpful and useful. <laughs> Can you talk about, and, and I know, you know, you just, you mentioned some of them in, in your previous response, but can you talk broadly about some of the most potentially concerning discoveries you've made regarding climate change and its effects on nature and health? 
Definitely. Sort of depends on where, where you're thinking. When we think about like what's happening with climate change, it's this sort of like planetary wide shift that's taking place where a lot of systems that are dependent on each other are changing and are changing shape. So for instance, with things like the polar vortex becoming a little bit less stable, that means that there's going to be more winter storms. So when we say things like climate change, people are like, oh, global warming, I get it. But also things like intensified rain, longer dry periods, more drought, while it also leads in other areas to things like really intense storms and more water than ever. It's just thinking about how, how all these systems that are interconnected start to sort of like cascade and bump up against each other. But in terms of like how it's impacting people, uh, there are more disasters than ever. So um, things like storms, like I mentioned, droughts, people are suffering things like loss of water sources. Where I do my research in Peru, one of the concerns are uh, glacial like outburst floods. So in the Andes, this means that glaciers are melting into lakes. And then these lakes become so full that they burst and that the dams that contain them can no longer contain how much water is in them. And so the last time it burst where I do my field research in the Andes, 20,000 people were killed. But the next one that's anticipated, 120,000 people are anticipated to die. So we could see how like these disasters are creating like human effects. But also in terms of like directly thinking about health, there's the issue of sanitation, especially with water disasters. This happened with uh, the disaster that happened, the hurricane that went through Houston a number of years ago and how it picked up all of this different debris and sedimentation and trash and oil and all of these kind of like gross things that we don't want in our water. And all these things get mixed up together and it becomes a sanitation issue. But also in different parts of the world, we have issues like illnesses that we thought were sort of eradicated or contained to certain parts of the world starting to spread. So in Peru, the issue is thinking about things like Zika and anthrax that were sort of contained to one place now spreading to different parts of the country that are underprepared, they don't have the medication or even like the, the sort of like cultural, you know, like embodied ways of thinking about these things. Like if Zika started spreading here, I don't think I would know how to start thinking about how to protect myself or what would I do to do something, to like prepare for something like that. And so uh, in Texas, something to think about is the fact that high hot, high, hot heat days, goodness, <laughs> might disproportionately impact the elderly who suffer higher mortality rates and who are more likely to die during these really intense days. Um, but also folks that live in lower income neighborhoods are more likely to die or be affected by heat because of things like poor investment in housing design um, and also things like the heat island effect, which means that where there are fewer trees, less green spaces, it tends to be a lot hotter. So in Dallas, this is really concerning because neighboring suburbs might be 19 degrees cooler on a hot day than some of like the inner city parts that have more concrete, uh, less green space. And we could see how these things will sort of like follow disproportionately impact different groups of people in society. Well, you know, and, and speaking of things that people are kind of unprepared for, um, you know, obviously following the winter storm that hit Texas in February, this issue of environmental management has taken on even more importance among people who may have never really even considered it previously. And um, you have regional specializations, like you mentioned, in Latin America and California. And of course, California was hit with similar rolling blackouts last year due to a summer heat wave. 
what can regions learn from each other when it comes to this kind of climate weirdness that's happening and will no doubt continue to happen in the years ahead? I was actually thinking a lot about California when everything was happening here uh, <laughs> during what my students were calling Snowbid Week. And I was thinking about how California, like Texas, had shifted into a really complex relationship with a private public model of infrastructure management. Um, but the event that I was thinking about was actually a wildfire event. So in 2018, uh, the energy company PG&E that managed most of California's energy ended up starting a fire because they didn't properly maintain their sort of infrastructure the way that they were supposed to. It was just cheaper not to. Um, so over 153,000 acres were burned, 10,000 homes were lost, over 80 people were killed. But these fires wouldn't have taken place if things were managed the way they were supposed to be managed. And so when you think about the fact that this private company was managing this problem and their goal was, you know, what any company is, is to make as much profit as you can. They've made the sensible decision for themselves. But they also did things like gave themselves millions in bonuses before retiring. And we see kind of similar things happening here in Texas. And I was thinking a lot about the similarities between these two sort of events and thinking about how we have infrastructure that's supposed to serve a lot of different needs at once. And so some of the needs it's supposed to serve are giving people energy and making sure that people have access to safety, <laughs> not being on fire, for instance, um, but also preventing things like blackouts and how that's kind of an expensive thing. And it's a hard sell to get a company to make those investments, especially when they're concerned about things like profits. And so we see how like an institution is tasked with solving two different types of problems that it might not be designed to be able to do successfully for both of these types of things. And so in thinking about what we could learn from each other, a lot of it has to do with thinking about how socially we manage different types of problems. Um, sometimes we try to do this very simple task of like lumping everything into like one thing. This one thing will solve all of these different issues. But what do we do when suddenly it's not solving those things? And how can we take a step back and think about like socially, how do we want to be organized? And so I think that this is something that climate change is bringing up for us is that it's sort of giving us an opportunity to look at what's working and not working and look at the ways that other people are being affected by different types of disasters and not necessarily having to make those same mistakes ourselves, but possibly uh, getting in front of things that we anticipate might be a problem. And of course we can learn from each other. It just sort of takes a little bit of creativity. And it's hard on the surface to see how something like fire and ice might be part of the same problem, right? So it takes someone who's thinking about things like infrastructure management, for instance, to sort of understand these intersections and maybe helpfully come up with some sort of like helpful policy programs or things like that. Um, I think that the big issue, though, is uh, a phenomenon that Clarence Grabley, who's an anthropologist, also talks about, which is that disasters like this sort of follow the cracks in our the cracks in our society, <laughs> which means that the effects are worse for some than they are for others. And so we saw with what happened here in Texas that a lot of what was happening was sort of heightening already existing inequalities of so things like race and gender, class, sexuality, you name it. And so we could see how, because there's already existing vulnerabilities that could potentially be solved through other means, they were heightened by these environmental problems. And so thinking about how to sort of solve those problems ahead of time as well, might also help us make better environmental choices or environmental management choices. 
And so if we could see these things coming, I think it would definitely help keep a lot more people alive and safe throughout what's probably going to come in the next century. Well, in your most recent research project, um, revealed climate change ad adaptation in Peru to be a site and source for the reproduction of global vectors of power made possible through cultural, political, and economic fields. Can you talk more about that work and what it illuminated in terms of the potential for societies to adapt in response to climate change? Sure. So my work in Peru was sort of twofold. I was really interested in how it was people were adapting to what they were expecting to be the environmental future. But I was also really interested in how scientists who were mostly from the global north, places like the United States and Europe, were involved in that process. And so how they were helping construct ideas about the future, but also sort of like strong arming what they thought would be the right thing to do in certain cases. One of the things my project really like, really sat in, and, and it's sort of a, a challenging thing to sit in, was thinking about the ways that scientists, especially STEM researchers, who I adore and I really love working on interdisciplinary projects with, um, it's sometimes hard to convince people that scientists themselves travel with culture. So when researchers from the US leave and work in other parts of the world, they're sometimes shocked when they get pushback from people, especially people that they're trying to help. And this was something that I was seeing in my research was that scientists were going to try to provide climate answers or different types of answers on climate change issues, and they were getting pushback. And so one instance of this was uh, there was a group of scientists coming from uh, the United States and they were partnering with the Peruvian National Park System to try to figure out a conservation project. And one of the things that they really wanted to do was prevent people from being able to graze their cows within the park walls, which is something that was like guaranteed by a treaty, like the, the, the history of it is long. But the concern was that it, these cows might damage fragile ecosystems and that the ecosystems themselves would likely collapse in the next 20 years because of climate change. So maybe if cows weren't grazing, it would keep them alive longer. But people who lived there weren't interested in that. You know, their cows need to eat and they're pastoralists and agriculturalists, they would starve and die. And so it's thinking about how it is that sometimes scientists will make recommendations for a specific type of outcome without understanding how people are often embedded in the environment. And so what my research was really focused on was getting people to think about how it is that sometimes when we're thinking about solving an environmental problem, it's also a human problem because people are often intertwined with environments in ways that people aren't thinking about. So my work followed a lot of these different types of conflicts and it highlighted how it is that scientists, you know, sometimes get a better grip on politicians than the people who are governed by them. So often scientists will win certain arguments and make choices for people that will govern them. And it really challenges things like democracy and how we think about how people are allowed to govern themselves. And so climate change adaptation, you know, we very often think of it as this like very helpful, hopeful sort of project where activists and all these different people are sort of involved. But sometimes it creates trouble as well. And so that's kind of what my research was focused on was better understanding how it is that we can make different types of recommendations while also considering the lives of people who are intertwined with the environments in ways that researchers might not anticipate. Well, I'm wondering too, because, you know, I'm wondering if that perspective that you bring as an anthropologist has, 
maybe opened up more possibilities in that realm of science when it comes to how do we sort of attack this monumental problem that seems like it's almost, you know, too hard to even address. So, so I'm wondering kind of what the response has been to, to your research and your perspective coming in, looking more at, at people and how, how this affects them. Yeah, I know that uh, I sort of feel bad sometimes because I don't want to set up anybody to be a bad guy in this scenario. I know that people who are trying to do this type of climate research, right, like they apply to grants, they do all of this work to really get themselves out there to be as helpful as possible. And, and I really, I really do admire that. And I think that some of my close friends when I was doing this research were scientists. Um, one part where I have seen success, where like my research interventions did create some type of change really had to do with thinking about how it is that scientists work with the people who are very often hired to be sort of like laborers for the project. So um, something that happens every summer in the Andes is groups, like dozens and dozens of groups of people arrive to do different types of like scientific studies and they hire local laborers who are mostly indigenous young men, indigenous Quechua men, who are mostly peasants or agriculturalists. And sometimes they make some money in the summer by doing different types of work for scientists. So they will guide scientists through the mountains. They'll do this very complicated work of like climbing 75 meter vertical ice walls. They'll carry all the like gear, the scientific gear, the campware, the food, the gas. Um, they cook and they clean for the scientists. They sometimes even collect data for scientists. And one of the issues that was emerging was that people were getting injured and they were getting killed. They were underpaid. Sometimes they become disabled doing this work. And so one of the things that my work was doing was pointing out that the types of practices that scientists were doing to collect certain types of data was actually endangering the people that they were trying to quote unquote save. And so some of the things that I've been working on with different scientific groups is developing different types of accountability projects and sometimes different like best practices guides to prevent people from making those types of mistakes. And so some ways of avoiding this would be setting certain types of labor standards for people, making sure that people are climbing on up-to-date gear, making sure people are paid at least a minimum wage, and coming up with ways of, I mean, this is sort of a grim thing to say, of taking care of people if something were to happen. So for instance, during my field work, a couple of people, I mean, many people actually died doing this type of work. And so what happens to their families? How could scientists possibly think about how they would brainstorm taking care of families who lose someone who's an essential part of their community. And so this is one way that like scientists have been really responsive and that a lot of people that I know that do field work were thinking about how, you know, I never really thought about how this might impact someone. And now they'll write it into their grants, for instance, or they'll write different types of care models into their grants. And so even something like that might actually make these really big impacts or, or thinking about ways of like, building community meetings into their grants or to their time spent doing research might make really big impacts in ways they didn't otherwise anticipate. And so I think a lot of it has to do with listening to people. Um, and, and I've seen a lot of success with people doing that and it actually changing the direction of projects and not just in ways about like ethics, for instance, but also uh, getting people to think differently about their own research projects. So it might make research richer also. It must be really satisfying to see that approach kind of pay off um, in all these different ways. And I, I know you're talking too about, you know, how can we make bigger impacts? And I'm, I'm wondering if there 
are specific steps or policies that you're hoping global societies will adopt when it comes to slowing climate change? Sure. So I always feel a little, uh, I, I teach an environmental anthropology course and I, I tell my students sometimes that my answer is a little unsatisfying in that I don't think there's a lot of individual things that we could do. So like, I know a lot of people will say like, just recycle or do X, Y, Z by yourself. And so many of the problems that we have are actually created by these like very large systems. And so everyone in my classroom, for instance, can decide we're all gonna recycle tomorrow, which would be lovely. And I support everyone doing that. But in terms of really making a dent on the scale of a project like this, a lot of it has to come from policy and it has to come from these sort of like large scale um, problem creators. And so the largest carbon emitters are industrial. And so a lot of the solutions to these problems will be things that are industrial solutions. So some things that I think would be really successful would be policies that invest in a clean energy transition. Um, and that doesn't just involve, you know, like we're going to do wind now or solar now, but really ensuring jobs training for people who will be transitioning from other fields like oil and coal. Like for me, people are at the center of all of these policies. I think things like stable job creation are another big part of it. And people really hate when I say this one, but policies that do things like cap emissions and regulate carbon emissions and not just offsets because I see a lot of companies, for instance, uh, you know, thinking that they could just sort of buy their way out of the problems that they're creating, when in turn those sort of like, you know, taxes or whatever, ends up being levied on the customer anyways. And so we have to think about ways of both holding people accountable, but also responsibly and very creatively making sure that people are taken care of in whatever sort of energy transition that we're making. So I'm hopeful about that. And I'm also hopeful about a lot of new technologies for things like carbon capture and carbon trapping. I see a lot of sort of corporations making these investments. So for instance, Chevy is transitioning to an all electric fleet by 2035. And I see these like very large scale things happening because people are making certain types of like consumer choices, pushing politicians. And I think that that's really where the answer lies is like, you know, holding our politicians accountable and getting the right people to sort of like represent those issues. Often when I'm talking about climate change and I always feel bad for my students during climate weeks is that it all sounds really bad and it's a little depressing and it is bad. But the truth is that it's already happening in other parts of the world. There are already mass migrations of people to urban centers that are overwhelmed by these problems. And there's already a loss of like ways of living for people who contributed least to these issues. So for instance, people who lived off the two blue islands, those islands are now underwater. And so in a lot of ways, these issues are pressing yesterday and we're too late for a lot of people. So I think that for me, the thing that is like the big takeaway is just how pressing these issues are. And I know that very often it feels like climate change is like a future thing, but it really is like it's unfolding today. And I, and I really think that that's something that I want us to be thinking about is that it's not something that is in the future, it's something that is happening right now. Um, and it will require things like uh, inclusion and intersectionality to be able to think about how to solve these problems in ways that don't just create more problems for people, which I think is a real challenge because we so often think about climate change as a scientific or a STEM problem, when it's also largely a social and political issue. Um, but I, I am hopeful. and. I, I really think that with enough sort of creative push and with the right sort of power that these issues can be solved. So 
um, that's my sort of like spiel of it is that it is it is a little bit of a Debbie Downer topic, but I really do think it's important and it affects so many people and it already does affect us here in Texas. Thank you for listening to UNT Pod. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Seacal and her research, please see our episode notes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at UNT Social and on Instagram at UNT. Until next time, be safe.